This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Otago Access Radio, in partnership with Otago Polytech, brings you Blowing Bubbles. Blowing Bubbles brings you positive conversations with people in their bubbles around the world. How are people living their bubble lives? Working from home, keeping kids entertained, and staying connected and getting exercise. And how are these things presenting us with the opportunities to find new ways of living? Every weekday, the Sustainable Lens team of Samuel Mann, Shan Gallagher and Mara Karatai reach out from their bubbles to chat with interesting and positive people around the world. Broadcast on Otago Access Radio 105.4 FM and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz and sustainablelens.org. Bringing connection, joy, kindness and peace in the days ahead. Welcome to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world. I'm Samuel Mann in Sawyer's Bay, Dunedin, and I am joined by Carsten Henriksen, who is in Vancouver. Good uh, morning, Sam. I guess I should say good afternoon, because it's just afternoon on Wednesday here. How is bubble life in Vancouver? You know, Sam, um, it's it's different. You know, I had the... the um, uh, uh, fortune to be in New Zealand during during the lockdown when COVID first broke out and, and lived through the experience of lockdown in New Zealand. Um, I'm currently sitting in Vancouver, and um, you know we have we we are still on in the process of dealing with COVID surges. So COVID is certainly on the minds of of folks. Um, you know we're dealing with um, daily deaths. Um, in, you know in 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 our province of British Columbia. Uh, and across the country and across North America. Um, but, uh, you know, people are, are, are wearing their masks. They're, you know, I think they're, they're actively engaging in, in um, you know, limiting their, their bubble um, and uh, trying to stay active and keep their, keep their spirits up as we move into uh, our, our colder winter months. So you were in New Zealand for the, the first part of the lockdown. That's right, Sam. And... What was it like being being trapped away from home? You know, I, I, I will, you know, when I was in New Zealand, I had a, a fantastic bubble and a fantastic bubble partner. Um, so that was that was fantastic. You know, uh, the the um, what I, what I found with with the lockdown in New Zealand is it was almost surreal um, in the sense that it was a very strict lockdown. And, you know, um, you know, I think everybody honored and respected um you know, uh, as the prime minister had said, pulling together um, to 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 um, get the COVID um, cases under control uh, and eliminate COVID from New Zealand. So it, it's uh, there was a sense of everybody pulling together, but from a distance. And um, you know, I, I'll never forget standing in line at the grocery stores um, with the security guards ensuring strict social distancing as we were waiting to go into the shops to get groceries. I'll never forget that for the rest of my life. And the strong sense that Kiwis had of pulling together to get COVID under control. And there was very little aggravation or upset. No, I, I you know, I, at least I didn't. I, I mean, I can't speak for, for, for everybody, but I, I mean, at the time I didn't, I didn't sense, sense aggravation or upset, upset. I sensed people coming together um, collectively to uh, whip COVID in the butt, um, as, as some would say. Um, and, and, uh, you know, I think the results are, are very clear. 
Um, you know, as as New Zealand has gone back into um, from from what I'm seeing and hearing, gone back into a, a relatively normal life um, while we await for a vaccine, uh, a rate of vaccine. And today, you know, we saw the United Kingdom uh, approve the Pfizer vaccine. So I think we're, we're starting to knock on wood. We're starting to get to a place where, um, you know, the world can start getting back to a new normal. So you went home to to Vancouver. What caused the what caused the the, the leaving paradise? Yeah. So so um, you know when I was in New Zealand, you know just just the um, the the, um, the the challenge of knowing that you know I had family um, on the other side of the world in Vancouver um, and. Um, the situation in, in North America being markedly different than the situation in in um, in New Zealand. Um, so, the, you know, quite a bit of distance and uncertainty about availability of flights and travel. You know, one of my 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 fears, of course, being that, um, you know, if I had a family member who became ill or, you know, was was, you know, killed, quite frankly, um, having older family members. Um, not wanting to to lose them and not not being there for them. So, um, you know that that was a, a big part big part of the move. Um, and, you know, as uh, as you know, COVID was unfolding and there was a lot of uncertainty. And did you have to wait in queues or anything to get flights home? Yeah, getting getting flights back to to Canada was 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 quite the challenge. Um, so, you know, I was based in Dunedin. Um, so from, I think I had, uh, uh, a flight to Christchurch and then a uh, flight from Christchurch to Auckland and then from Auckland, Auckland to LA and then from LA, uh, to, to, uh, Vancouver. So all in it's about three days, uh, to get back to, to Vancouver versus, you know, um, basically a day, uh, 24 hours, uh, without COVID. So Certainly different and very surreal to, to travel internationally uh, with the airports, um, you know, around, you know, certainly between uh, New Zealand and the United States, markedly different and in Canada. So, you know, both, you know, the airports in New Zealand, very, very quiet, not a lot of tra- traffic, um, everybody honoring and respecting social distancing. The landing in Seattle, it was almost like going through a time warp. Um, going back six months to a time where there was no social distancing when we got off the plane. Um, you know, people were sitting in cafes and restaurants having, having meals. Um, it was, uh, it was, it was quite the experience um, uh, traveling back. And then you eventually got back to Canada that still seemed to have managed it better than the States. Is Canada, I'm imagining it's something like halfway between the experience here and, and in the States. Yeah, I, I think that's just based on my own experience, Sam. I think that's that's a good good assessment of of um, of where where we're at. I mean, Canada's Canada's uh, um, approach to COVID varies by province. So the provinces in Canada are responsible for healthcare delivery, not the government of Canada. So there's not a, a kind of a national unified approach to COVID response like there is in like there is and was in in New Zealand. Um, so, so markedly different, but 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 I think in between where New Zealand was and and where the United States is. 
so you're in Vancouver. Are you in central Vancouver? I am right downtown Vancouver. If the sun wasn't so bright right now, I'd turn my camera around so you could see. But I'm, I'm in the downtown core, uh, just, just a ways away from Stanley Park. Yeah, and I, I know I know that lots of folks will, will recognize Stanley Park as being the large park uh, right in downtown Vancouver. With a great cycle track around the edge of it. You know what? I run there every single day, Sam. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. So how is the the communication from the the British Columbia Columbian? Just a British Columbian? British Columbia would be would be uh, would be uh, a good a good way of putting it. So, what does the communication from them look like? You, you talked about the the be kind message that the team of five million that resonated so well here. What sort of messaging are you getting there? You know, I think very much. We we have a fantastic uh, chief medical officer um, uh, named by the name of Dr. Bonnie Henry, who is um, regularly updating the the population and working very closely with the uh, elected government officials, the cabinet ministers. Um, so there's there's been very clear communication. Um, the the um, you know population is is being engaged. Um, you know, the British Columbia and and I, I would speak to the larger position of Canada is in, in a different space because we're, we're, you know, so connected to the United States uh, and so close to the United States. Um, you know, the, the strong advantage New Zealand has is being, being an island, being, being to the two islands largely. Um, it's easy to control coming in, those coming in and out. Um, and, um, you know, British Columbia is a, is, is a huge landmass uh, with people spread out and, um at the same time, um, you know, um, you just 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 some just some I think some fundamental differences in terms of how um, um, you know the, the the economy is is functioning and functions. So let's take the first of your music choices. Let's have the Jerry Cans. You're going to have to pronounce the name of the song for me. Sorry, I, you know what, uh, Sam? I honestly forgot which song I sent you. Um, I'll, I'll speak to the jerry cans, though. Okay. The jerry cans uh, are are housed in Aluit in Nunavut, um, and uh, one of the members of the jerry cans is a student of Nunavut Art College. Um, and uh, I, from my position, having spent a lot of time uh, in in Nunavut, to me, the jerry cans speak to the Arctic and in, in the north. Um, and uh, they're they're a, a group that I listen to uh, on a regular basis. And um, you know, for those who haven't heard the Jerry Cans before, um, I uh, thought it would be a great thing to share from from the north, Canada's north. Okay, so I'm going to attempt to pronounce it. It's Ukig. Yeah. Okay. We'll we'll go with that, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> I'm 
So you're back in Vancouver. What work are you doing there? So I am working with um, healthcare, um, the First Nations Health Authority, uh, and uh, the First Nations Health Directors uh, of British Columbia, um, and uh, a number of, of folks um, on the establishment of a uh, really unique and innovative uh, institution um, uh, here here uh, in, in British Columbia, really reflecting uh, some fantastic work um, being done on First Nations healthcare delivery uh, in the province. At, at the same time is doing work uh, uh, on uh, on my doctorate um, and doing uh, some consulting work for a number of other organizations. How is the First Nations health response to the pandemic? You know, I I I, um, I think that uh, the response has been you know very consistent with the approach taken by. Uh, the uh, province of British Columbia. I think the, the stakeholders and partners work very closely together, um, and um, you know, in, in in close collaboration. So you mentioned it. So how is the doctorate going? Yeah, you know, I think really well um, from from my perspective, Sam. I've spent a lot of time reflecting on, on my own leadership practice and. You know, my work experience in, in higher education in, in Canada, more specifically, uh, reflecting on uh, where we go from here. And when I say that, I mean, as a sector uh, in higher education, um, are the types and ways we teach and de deliver programming really reflective of the world that we're moving into post-COVID uh, and reflective of, at the same time, what the world we were already headed into, and that was a world of Industry 4.0, when we um, were moving into an economy that was characterized by rapid technological change. Um, and, you know, certainly hearing from industry folks uh, about the needs of industry uh, to uh, upskill and reskill uh, learners and, and employees in a, in a rapid way. And, so, you know, as I as I conduct my 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 work, I'm very mindful of of the work that has been done uh, at Capable New Zealand, specifically the um, bicultural model of education uh, and the uh, practice based model of education. Uh, you know, I think when we look at the practice based credentials that uh, are being offered um, by Capable New Zealand, I think that really speaks to uh, a path or a direction that as a, as a sector of higher education, we really need to go down. Uh, we need to produce graduates that aren't just engaging in um, traditional academic work. Well, there's a huge amount of value in engaging in, in, in pure research. I think what a lot of our uh, industry partners in higher education are looking for are graduates who complete programs that are really focused on getting in there um, and identifying issues, to identifying opportunities, and demonstrating and applying um, solutions, um, and and really seeing um, outcomes as a result of of their their education. I also think that if we talk about and you know, and as I'm looking at, at capable and I'm looking at. Uh, the work being done there. I also think to 
the role of micro-credentials. Uh, I think uh, at OP, they're called edubits, but how edubits or micro-credentials can be stackable um, and stackable into practice-based credentials. And I'm thinking about, at the same time, how those stackable credentials, those micro-credentials credentials can be used in a bicultural education environment to reduce barriers to higher education for Indigenous or, or First Nations people uh, in, um, in the world. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm very excited about the opportunities that, that the work that Capable is doing is really on the leading edge, not only in New Zealand, um, but on the leading edge in the world. And I think, you know, oftentimes when we're doing the work, we don't necessarily see the, the global impact or the global leadership of our programs. And I think that everyone engaged in, in work at Capable New Zealand, whether they be faculty or staff or learners, um, and ultimately the institution as a whole um, is, really, is really leading the way. Um, and I think, you know, folks should be really proud of that work uh, and be mindful of the fact that it's it's an iterative process and an evolving process as well. Um, so um, that's kind of where I'm at. Um, and I think that there's a lot of opportunities to, uh, to um, you know, leverage the work that has been done to date uh, to really inform a new way of moving forward from a bicultural practice-based model of education in a post-COVID world that responds to the industry 4.0 and the needs of our labor market. You've done a lot of work in various parts of Canada, including in the, the, the very far north. Do you see that this sort of thing could be applied in those remote communities? You know, I, I absolutely I absolutely see that, Sam. Um, I think that, you know, my, my, my own experience has been working in rural and remote communities in Canada is that particularly working with with um, indigenous indigenous students or indigenous learners, you know, I, the number of times I've come across uh, individuals who have engaged in um, formal learning, um, you know, with with partner institutions who leave that formal learning experience with a terminal credential that doesn't really lead anywhere. Um, it, it creates it creates um, uh, personal and professional barriers for folks. Um, and I think when we talk about uh, bicultural practice-based education, I think in the context of, of, of Canada, and I, I would argue and advocate for, for a lot of the world, really speaks to where, where we're going uh, from an, uh, a post-COVID and, and industry 4.0 perspective. That being said, um, you know, we need to bring um, kind of Western uh, culture together with um, our, our Indigenous communities side by side um, in a mutually respective uh, fashion um, that respects not only uh, knowledge and value systems, but also language. Um, and in, in a way that um, helps build paths forward. Uh, one of the, the things I like to say is, you know, as, as, as educators, we come alongside our learners or, or our students and we help them on their journey to wherever it is that they're they're planning on going or or positioning themselves to you know meet the challenge of whatever the future presents to them um, and in doing so in a way that is not leading them into a terminal credential that is you know it's a you know it, it reflects reflects learning and it reflects 
an experience, but um, is is a, is a dead end. Um, so I think there's tremendous opportunities for for Canada to work collaboratively with um, Canadian institutions, I should say, um, and and institutional partners to work collaboratively with capable uh, New Zealand uh, on on a future forward. I think one of the advantages or one of the exciting things is that the the approach to working in partnership with indigenous communities is has to be about relationships and it's not about selling a product it's not about going out and saying well you should enroll in our in our business degree something that we've already decided what that looks like but with the professional practice approach and but because we have a a, a, a full suite from, as you say, the micro-credentials through, it applies at the degree, it applies at the at post-grad, at, at master's and at, at doctorate, that it can be about, well, what are you trying to learn? What, what would be useful for your community for you to learn? Let's figure out a way of doing that rather than it being predetermined what they're going to learn. Yeah, you know, just just to 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 expand on that that thought, you know, um, I, I'm not I'm not as familiar with how the institutional funding models work in New Zealand, but each province in in Canada and territory in Canada funds their institutions in different ways. Um, I would suggest, and I think the research is very clear that over the last several decades, institutional funding has has declined in significant ways and. Uh, as a result, a lot of institutions are are looking to uh, work collaboratively with with stakeholders. Um, you know, whether that be industry or First Nations or in, Indigenous uh, partners, but they're doing so to meet the needs. And that they would always argue that they're there to meet the needs. But there's also a revenue uh, a, re- a revenue motivation, and. I think with that revenue revenue motivation, I think that's really speaking to the the lack of funding for post secondary education in in uh, a lot of Canadian jurisdictions. Um, that being said, um, you know when we talk um, about uh, practice based uh, model, Sam, I really do agree with you that um, in coming alongside communities and helping actually understand their needs. And not not coming in either with a prescriptive or coming in having the dialogue uh, about what those learnings uh, or the desire for those learnings are, and then sticking a, um, a kind of a mainstream program um, into that community with a little bit of tailoring. I mean, a great example would be, um, you know, that I that I know of is early childhood education. You know, moving a regular early childhood education program into an an Indigenous or an Aboriginal early childhood education program, calling it something different, um, but it really not really reflecting um, a significant difference other than than a branding exercise. Um, So when we talk about um, bicultural education, I I really do look to to the work that New Zealand has done. Um, I mean, nothing is ever perfect. Uh, and everything is always a work in process and things are usually iterative, at least from my perspective. But I look to, you know, the, uh, the bicultural education approaches in New Zealand, beginning at early, child, early childhood education levels, leading all the way through um, uh, the educational experience or journey. You know, the, the number of times that I've heard um, uh, 
non-Maori people use the Maori language in, in New Zealand, to me was very shocking uh, in, in a good way. Um, you know, I can't, I can't think of um, having, that ex having had that experience in many Canadian uh, environments. And it's not to say I'm being critical of Canada. I just think it speaks to New Zealand being, uh, being ahead of the curve and, um, you know, um, continuing to wanting to do good work in that area. Bubble Sprite of the Forest of Orokanui, Dunedin's favourite goddess, Tahu Mackenzie. Kia ora koutou, nā mihi aroha nui, kia koutou koutou hau. I hope you're all happy to stay beautiful superstars in your beloved universes. I really hope that wherever you are and whatever's happening around you, this journey that we're all on together is proving to be very rewarding, very sustaining and illuminating for you more and more each day. Who you are, the triumph of nature's are perfect and here make it better. So beautiful people, as we know, we've been on this huge adventure together this year. It's been, I'm sure for all of us, just the most intense year ever. So many ups and downs, so many different levels of being, understanding, so many different lockdown levels. Love at a distance, being away from our friends and whanau, having to really go within and care for ourselves in very new ways. And of course, support and sustain each other in the process of all of this. So for myself, just in the last few days, as we know, I have been quite unwell and a lot of the grief and the the pain and the, the feelings that were there that needed to come out around my lovely ex-partner leaving and the whole year unfolding as it has really hit me all of a sudden. And of course, that was very hard for me. And uh, what I'm in the process of doing now is really making sure that I'm allowing these feelings to flow. And as we all know, when we have these intense grieving feelings and this, this stored pain, it is hard to allow it to flow through us. And I think because I've just had so many exciting things happening, wonderful events happening, and all my work here at my heart's home, Orokunui Eco Sanctuary, where I'm sitting right now watching the wind stirring up the tokoka leaves and the, the flax, beautiful harakeke leaves. You know, I haven't had that opportunity to process, so I really hope for you that as we head towards the end of the year and we are hopefully getting a little bit more time, that you're able to allow any stored pain, any feelings that are within to, to move through. And obviously for us societally, it can be quite stigmatised and quite taboo to talk about these feelings of pain and grief, sorrow and unhappiness and I think it's really important that we do talk about them because they're part of who we are and they're part of our growth, they're part of our co-evolution and if we ignore them they really affect us, you know, if we don't allow them to, to move through they really affect us. So, you know, as I'm sitting and looking at these beautiful, beautiful, beautiful Rako Māori dance in the wind and I can see the light uh, from the sun shining down but I can also see the shadow and of course it's so important for all of us that we allow the light of our consciousness into these shadow parts of ourselves, these parts that haven't had that opportunity to be seen, haven't had that opportunity felt, and are still there. And that dance between the light and the dark, you know, that's always with us, and the part of us really coming to understand ourselves and what we do. So as much as it has been hard for me over the last few days with very strong emotions uh, that I'm putting the light on, I'm bringing out the light, 
I'm really grateful for that opportunity as well because I know that that's allowing me to really honour myself. So I really hope that for you, you are having the opportunity to get the support that you need, giving yourself the time and the space to process any things here. And I really hope that there's lots of opportunities to see, course, the beauty in the living world that surrounds us, knowing that we are part of that, knowing that there's always dance between the shadow and the light and knowing that we are dancing and it's fun. <laughs> as much as it's hard, it is part of our growth. So have a wonderful day, everybody, and I look forward to talking tomorrow. Thanks so much. Kakiti. You're listening to Blowing Bubbles. We're talking with Carsten Henriksen, who is in Vancouver. Are you in the West End? Is that what it's called? Uh, I'm in West Vancouver, yes. There's a nice shop there. I really liked what the... I went there for a conference that was at the, it was the media centre for the, the Winter Olympics. It's a building with a with a grass roof. Um, yeah, that's right. I run I run by that every day as well. Sam. I know exactly where you run because we I was staying in the the West End. There was a particularly nice supermarket. Was it a Whole Foods market? Safeway. I can't remember what it was. It was a nice place anyway. It would have been whole, it would have been it would have been Whole Foods, Sam. You were talking about Industry 4.0 and post-COVID. What do you think we're looking at in terms of the the regeneration or the reset? How, how are you seeing the opportunity there? You know, I think that's a, that's a great question, Sam. You know, I, I think, you know, when I compare and contrast the experience uh, of New Zealand versus, uh, versus Canada, you know, one of the things that... Um, that I've noticed is that, you know, a lot of higher education in, in certainly in British Columbia and in, and, and I have colleagues in, in Alberta, they're, te- they're still teaching online. And, um, you know, while we prior to COVID had spent a lot of time in, in terms of higher education talking about and, and engaging and supporting uh, distance learning or, or blended delivery, um, there was still the classroom kind of ruled the, ruled the delivery in terms of this is this is the way we do it, right? Uh, in terms of post-secondary uh, education, at particularly the undergraduate level, and I think what uh, what the COVID experience has taught us is that um, we can have very high quality learning experiences, um, teaching teaching experiences, leveraging um, digital technology, you know, leveraging software, leveraging our our, our broadband connectivity. Um, you know, I'm teaching right now um, uh, electronically, and um, you know, it's it's um, it, it's gone it's gone very well. And what it has been able to do is to take down some barriers for folks as well. So, you know, for parents that are at home that have childcare responsibilities, you know, they can they can be at home and they can be taking care of their child. I've had you know um, video conference calls with with a baby on somebody's lap or a sick child and. That, that barrier of, of, of the classroom, you know, or having to go to the classroom or get to the classroom isn't there anymore. Uh, so as long as you have a, a, a computer and a broadband uh, connection or even a smartphone, you can engage in that learning. And I think we're seeing faculty and, and staff being far more comfortable um, delivering in that model. That in turn, Sam, leads to questions about, you know, in higher education, you know, do we need to be building the infrastructure that we are traditionally building on campus. 
Yes, I would argue that there's lot, there's always going to be a, a need for spaces for people to physically come together. Um, but do we need to be building large campuses the way that we were um, prior to COVID? Um, is, is that need really there for infrastructure uh, from an educational delivery perspective? From an industry 4.0 perspective, I think what a world post-COVID is really going to continue to rely increasingly on um, easily accessible education and learning. I think that COVID will um, remove a lot of, of geographical barriers as well. Um, you know, there's there's just no reason now for folks to have to go to any any place. They can they can potentially enroll anywhere in the world, um, and that, that might create more competition between institutions but also reinforces the importance of close collaboration between institutions as well. I think from talking to people on this show, but also from talking to learners who are working in their professions, one of the things that it's done is it's people have had to stop and think about what it is that they do for their, for their work and realising that it's not defined by the actual technology or the what they do on a daily basis it's what the essence is it's what they what are they trying to achieve because one of the things that the pandemic did the lockdowns did was all of a sudden we couldn't deliver it by this way that we thought was what we're good at we had to find other ways of doing it so it really has lifted people's mindset up to that what is the what is the thing that i do or what what are we trying to achieve rather than what it is I yeah. actually do? You know, I, I think that's that's a very good very good point, Sam. You know, I think that that thinking is happening not only in a professional or a learning context, but also from a um, a, a very personal perspective. You know, I I look to um, even something as as simple as the real estate market. Um, and I say simple because, you know, I, in, in Canada, there's a, a real estate app. I won't mention the name, um, but the real estate app, um, you know, basically will put all the listings, um, you know, anywhere in the world in front of you. And I noticed a market increase in the number of uh, condominiums in the downtown Vancouver market up for sale. You know, two years ago, um, you know, a house would sell very quickly or a condo would sell very quickly. But what I'm hearing from folks is they're more interested uh, in, a, in a COVID and post-COVID world um, now that there's the flexibility not to have to be in an urban center for work. A desire to move out of urban out of an urban center and move into a more rural environment where perhaps you have more space, um, where you you know you have some room to kind of roam around your own property. You know, in in New Zealand, you know, lots of folks. Um, you know, I'll have their home and, and a garage and, and a little bit of a yard or a lawn and, and a garden. And, um, you know, that's that's different than being in an urban center like in Vancouver or Toronto. So I think people are, are starting to reflect on not only what it is they do from from a professional learning perspective, but also from a, from a, a personal, a very personal one in the sense of, you know, do I don't necessarily need to live in a city anymore for work. Let's take the second of your music choices. Let's have Philip Phillips' Home. Why this one? So um, 
I actually uh, listened was listening to the um, playlist for Barack Obama's new book while I was reading Barack Obama's new book. And um, as I was reading uh, a chapter um, uh, where Obama is speaking to the um, connection between the state of Hawaii and Chicago, I was listening to this song, Home. And um, for those of you who haven't read it, not to plug his book or anything, but it is a fantastic read, really giving a, a unique insight into um, the thinking of the president of the United States, Barack Obama at the time, but also uh, speaking to some of um, some learnings from the uh, Bush administration as well, and the American approach to global relations. Um, so it's a fascinating read, and and this this song is going to remind me of of that uh, of that read, um, and um, also makes me think about how we define home. Um, so uh, I hope I hope folks enjoy enjoy the listen.
We've seen lots of changes at a societal level over the last few months. What do you think is going to stick and what do you hope will stick? You know, one of the things that I have really enjoyed is um, the, the, the human touches or the personal touches. So, you know, as a result of uh, folks working from home more um, and um, having to, you know, join meetings, for example, um, you know, in their home environment, we've gotten the opportunity or had the opportunity to kind of see a little bit more into people's lives um, in the sense that, you know, everybody's perhaps got a dog or a cat or a child crying in the background. I think what, what COVID has done is has made all of us more human. And, you know, um, I was in a, in a conference call about two weeks ago and um, uh, this professional person had a dog that just would not quit barking. And, and the person said, Oh, I'm so embarrassed. I've lost my professionalism. And to me, um, that was absolutely not the case. Right. And so I think it's made us all a little bit more humble, um, you know, not having offices or that kind of professional image that we're, we're having to, to steward and foster. It's all about um, being more human and being more personable and recognizing that, you know, um, you know, we're all just we're all kind of trying to make our own way. And so I think if there's one thing that I hope we we keep, it's that. Um, at the same time, I think, I hope we have an opportunity to rethink how, not only how we work, but, but why we do the things that we do in a work environment and in a learning environment. And then from a Canadian context, um, you know, our, our urban centers have been kind of growing and growing and growing um, at the expense of a lot of our rural and remote communities. And I've heard more and more that People from the urban centers are moving back to their smaller communities outside of outside of the big cities, and that is revitalizing re, um, some some of our communities. And I hope that that continues because there's a lot of value in those smaller communities um, um, and having a, a very diverse and vibrant not only labor force but population. I have some questions to end the show with and not very much time so we shall have to be quick what is the biggest success you've had in the last couple of years you know uh, from a from a from a personal perspective sam i think that um really really creating a balance between uh work and and uh my professional life and my personal life um and um you know working collaboratively with with um, uh, uh, First Nations and Indigenous leaders uh, in different parts of, of the world has been incredibly rewarding, but also, um, you know, making it to 40, because I just turned 40. Um, so making it to 40 and, and um, still being active and engaged and, and uh, living, living my best life. I think those would be the two kind of high level things. And, you know, um, I had actually planned on doing a lot of, of, of traveling this, this year, but uh, because of COVID, that that didn't happen. So uh, plans plans for next year: lots of kayaking and uh, getting into the mountains. We're writing a book of these conversations. It's called Tomorrow's Heroes. It's our team of people doing good work. So you are in the team. What is the superpower that's got you into the mansion? You know, I I, I think um, you know what trying to be humble. Uh, and, and being humble and recognizing that we're all 
we're all in, like I said earlier, we're all in this together. Um, and and really uh, learning from people, sitting down and, and, and listening and learning from, from people, I think would be uh, one of the things that I would say would be would be a, would be a superpower. But also uh, being somebody willing to push push boundaries uh, and um, be willing to say say yes, even when something is difficult. Do you consider yourself to be an activist? Um, you know what? If you if you would have asked me twenty years ago whether I would consider myself to be an activist, I would have said no. Um, but as as you uh, grow and evolve as a leader and and realize that you are pushing boundaries, um, I'm more inclined to say yes. Um, I'm an advocate for um, access to to higher education and. Ad- advocate for those who, for whatever reason, feel that they don't have a place or a space um, in uh, tradi- the traditional academy. is So I, I would say now, yes, 20 years ago, no. That's interesting. Most people say that the other way around. Oh, I was an activist. I used to all these marches, but now I just go to work. Uh, you know what? I, I hear you, Sam. And, and um, you know, from, uh, from an administrative perspective, um, Sam, I recognize that, you know, Nothing's ever ever perfect, and you know you're. I'm a pragmatist from from that perspective, but I'm I'm a a, um, a pragmatist uh, from an operational perspective. Um, but I, I think I still there's still a strong desire in me to push um, and and to to advocate and and to um, help move move the bar forward, even if it's just a millimeter. So, what motivates you? What gets you out of bed in the morning? Well, today, um, on a very personal level, just the beautiful, beautiful uh, environment I find myself uh, in in uh, in Vancouver and and in British Columbia. But it really what gets me up every day is people and the opportunity to work with them and to share and learn with them. Um, every day you learn something new, and um, it excites me every day to get up and find out what I'm going to learn uh, in a in a given day. You've told me before that you grew up in a kind of edge of suburbia on the outskirts of Vancouver. Have you gotten to get out to some wild places? I have. I have. I mean, I actually grew up in, in a suburb of, of Vancouver called New Westminster and, uh, and in Burnaby. So not so far out of the city, but most of my adult life has been actually outside of the urban centre. Um, uh, in, in rural and remote Canada, whether that, uh, you know, whether that be in the high Arctic or, or, or uh, in other places. Um, so I have had the opportunity to get back out onto the land uh, earlier on in the summer uh, here, which is, you know, June, uh, July and August. I had a fantastic opportunity to go to northern British Columbia and do a, a wonderful kayaking trip. It was very wet, um, but get out and into some fantastic lakes uh, and, and just explore with, uh, with some good friends. And what challenge are you looking forward to in the next year or so? You know, uh, the next year or so, uh, you know, I'm I'm very hopeful that um, we'll be we'll be into our well into our COVID vaccine um, campaigns, and and that the world will start getting back to its new normal. I think that is important for a whole bunch of different reasons, not only from an economic perspective, because you know, certainly in in British Columbia and other places, lots of people have been displaced from the labor market. And I know a lot of people are out there looking for work and, and want to work. Um, so um, I think it's important for us to get that vaccine 
uh, campaign happening. So I'm looking forward to that most um, because I do miss having the ability to get out there and, and uh, be with larger groups of people. Um, uh, on, a, on a professional perspective, we've got some really exciting things happening uh, work-wise that will we'll, um, be, be uh, progressing forward and hopefully looking for opportunities for um, uh, us to work in, in collaboration here with uh, folks in Capable New, Ze- with Capable New Zealand. And lastly, do you have any advice for our listeners? Um, you know, as we're coming to the end of the COVID, um, this phase of COVID and, and moving into the next phase where folks are getting vaccinated, um, I will say this, I'm not a medical professional, but I would encourage folks to take listen to their medical advice to, to stick to it, which I know all uh, Kiwis are, are, are inclined to do, or a lot of them are inclined to do. Um, get vaccinated. If you have the the opportunity to get vaccinated. I know there's uh, a, a significant number of people here, it sounds like, that uh, are not inclined to get vaccinated. But I think, you know, we come together, need to come to all need to come together globally and get vaccinated and uh, kick COVID in the butt. Thank you very much for that. We'll go out to the last of your music choices. Let's have Randa Fashion. Thank you very much for joining me. Thanks so much, Sam. You have a great day. Waters at the club, pour another one. When I hit the beat, go down like I don't care about cars. I don't care about mansions. All I wanna do is party, baby. All I wanna feel is fashion, fashion. I don't care about cars. I don't care about mansions. All I wanna do is party, baby. All I wanna feel is fashion, fashion. Style is everything, I don't believe in better things. Everything, it can be anything Big heart's not in it for the payoff I like art, that eats my face off Find God in the fabrics, yeah And arrangement is madness Don't get me started with the graphics Oh, I'm feeling so romantic Best look is a high school death wish Head trip, jamming jacket with the red zips You know my pants like a pastel Don't look bad if y'all don't wanna pass that It's kinda funny See, I just want someone to love me can't you tell that I'm a hype artist? Can't you tell I like to type garbage? It's not love song, it's not anthem. This is for the moms and the dads, dads, uh. Waters at the club, pour another one. When I hit the beat, go down like. I don't care about cars. I don't care about mansions. All I wanna do is party, baby. All I wanna feel is fashion, fashion. I don't care about cars. I don't care about mansions. All I wanna do is party, baby. I'm crazy. Don't hate me. Pellegrino sip a whole bottle. Don't mean I'm not a shitty role model. So many cusswords. Oh, Lars. Too many cusswords. California dreaming. I'm in Los Angeles screaming. Sweet Reggie. Beach baby. Y'all cool. You've been listening to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world. Brought to you by the Sustainable Lens Team, which is brought to you by Otago Polytechnic. We broadcast on Otago Access Radio every weekday afternoon at 3 and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz. You can find us on Facebook and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We had a contribution today from Tahu McKenzie. I'm Samuel Mann in Sawyer's Bay, Dunedin, and I've been joined by Carsten Henriksen, in Vancouver. We hope you enjoyed the show. It's just confidence, it's just over the
This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.